think I'm doing those eyes. <laughs> I think I'm in love. It was terrifying. The pain, the, the fear of being eaten. I was drowning at the same time. I just accepted that I was going to die. Was there a bit of fandom for you when it came on? Oh, you huge. And I did not try to hide. <laughs> did not try to hide at all. Out of the box with Serge Negus on FBI. Big thanks to Alex Pye for the last few hours of music and Sydney culture news. If you missed anything on Mornings or any other program, you can head to fbiradio.com to catch up on anything there. Today on Out of the Box, though, I'm joined by someone who is breaking down societal stereotypes around culture, identity, politics, sexuality. He's a gay Indigenous young man from Sydney, and at the last election, he ran as a Liberal candidate against Tanya Plibersek in the seat of Sydney. His name is Geoffrey Rinters, and he's right here with me now. I'm very happy for him to be here as well. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, look, you're a Gamilaro man, but very interestingly, you said recently that, you know, you weren't always a proud Gamilaro man. Why is that? I don't think it was necessarily an absence of pride. I think it was more an absence of exposure and awareness of what it meant to be a Gamilaroi person. And I think without that knowledge, it's pretty difficult to be proud of it. Um, I was talking about that in the context of being raised in a relatively white environment in Western Sydney, uh, a place where there was very little cultural diversity and reflecting upon how I felt or dealt with my self-consciousness about being Indigenous, knowing I was Indigenous and always having that knowledge. Uh, it never been shied away from in the home, but how that manifests itself in me as, say, a 12-year-old going to a white school uh, when my father would either be around or, more weirdly on reflection, when Indigenous issues would be raised, say, in a classroom environment, perhaps even you know, through literature. I remember studying Sally Morgan's My Place and I constantly felt like they were talking about me or my family when we were talking about Indigenous people. And I think getting past that self-consciousness is the first barrier to embracing not only what that identity means, but accessing that pride we speak of. And it certainly was a process that started in high school. And how did you go about doing that? Well, I wasn't assertive or active about it whatsoever. I'd probably say it started with my older sister, who was always a few years ahead in most of those growing up processes just due to her age. And for her, it was certainly that going off to university, very aware of her, her past, her history and her heritage. But being in an environment where it was fairly automatically okay, mm. which is a terrible way to talk about it, but it's probably the truth. And I think having that kind of worldview come back into the family home uh, was one part of it. I think the second part of it is we can't underestimate how far we've started to come as a community in the last 10 years. That was certainly the time when I would have been coming to the end of school and heading off to university and starting to really tap into who I was as a person. And I think both my time to mature and grow as a young adult was occurring at a time when I think Australian society was starting to step up a gear in terms of how we understood ourselves and parts of our difficult and, 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 and racial history. And I think those three strands ran together and, and, and were probably the program of me coming to awareness, uh, respect and pride of it. And before you came came to Western Sydney, you were you were based way out west. Well, Tell us about what it was like out there. So Dad's family have been from Walgut forever and ever. Um, my grandparents met on a mission called Engledool, which is just north of Walgut, and their, their family had lived in and around that area forever before that. Um, they moved into to the reserve in the early 60s, just out of Walgut, and it wasn't until my dad was 10 that he first went into town and even knew that a town existed about four kilometres from the tin shed wow. where he grew up. Wow. Um, my childhood was slightly different to that, being uh, my parents spent most of their time raising us in Orange in Western New South Wales. But we were always spending time in and out of our family's community, whether it was Dubbo or Walgett, and it was always apparent the difference in terms of what life looked like. Um, and it probably wasn't until very recently where Dad and I spent some time out there in a very focused way, looking at where he was raised and, and just talking about what life looked like for him in 1960-something as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old. And the reality is just stark in terms of the difference and the progress, and it's certainly put in context the time and effort and concerted uh, attention my parents dedicated to A, ensuring we had great educations, but B, also now ensuring we have an appreciation of what things were like for other people in other times. And so what did your parents do? Because, I mean, I guess you, you know, having such a strong thought towards education and also becoming a lawyer, I mean, like, it's an amazing pathway, you know, but like that, it, not, it doesn't just take anyone to do that, you know, you obviously had parents that really instilled some pretty hardcore ideals in you, right? Well, it was strange because... Um, in an, in an interesting way, mum being from a white, you know, relatively uh, established family in the country, uh, 
she never went off to university or pursued any of those sort of um, highly qualified life experiences, but rather had a very, what I guess was common experience for a woman of her age and, and, and upbringing at that time. She became a housewife. Mm. Dad, by contrast, had been raised by my grandfather, who was a very stubborn Aboriginal man who was determined that his kids would get an education and deliberately sent my father away to school in Newcastle. And so I think in some weird way, this this fixation with education has been the vehicle for what you want and expect out of life came through my Aboriginal family and through my grandfather and my father. But it was certainly an ideal that my mother uh, latched onto and encouraged with us. And in fact, we were for most of our childhood raised by, by my mum single-handedly. And despite her never having attended university, it was just a, a family where politics, uh, a contest of ideas, and this subliminal expectation that you would go off and study and really pursue that growth of your mind was never a, was never a question. It just existed. Um, we used to have passionate argue, arguments about whatever was going on in the world. And on reflection now, I think it is slightly strange that we did because there wasn't, you know, some PhD parent sitting at the table <laughs> making us read the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. We just felt an urge as a family to argue these issues and perhaps that was because of a, an awareness of how uh, there are people in our family struggling with the most uh, uh, desperate and oppressive aspects of Australian life and mm. we probably had a, a slightly more comfortable, although I'd hardly say comfortable life as a single mother family in Western Sydney at this stage, that it drove us to be just... In, in, I think we were just intuitively politically aware because politics for us wasn't some intellectual engagement. It was the day-to-day -day reality of both our existence and our families. And how did it make you feel then, I guess, like when your parents did split up? How did that impact on, on where you wanted to go at that point? Well, it's strange. I mean, I remember being at school and people always making the asking the question or having an assumption about, oh, you know, do you notice the absence of a parent? And family was such a strong element in our, in our unit, whether it's from my father's family who continued to play a very active role in our lives or my mother's family who, being a country family in particular and a very large one at that, there was always people in our house. And I think the way that plays into this political awareness is that one, there were more opinions at the dining table every night than perhaps there ever is expressed in a newspaper on a weekly basis. <laughs> Two, being a loud country family that sat at the table for hours together every night, there was always a vigorous discussion about those issues. But three, you got to, you got to see so many different walks of life. And I think when you have that contrast in front of you on a daily basis, you start to understand how uh, it's important that leadership in a national sense or a state sense encompasses everybody and encourages everyone to be lifted up together and doesn't allow people to fall behind. I think when you see so many different lives, you do see how people can be, mm. feel it, whether it's real or, or not, feel left behind and sometimes actually be left behind. Mm. And you really appreciate the opportunity to, to pursue your dreams and your goals. And when they, they are presented in front of you, and for me, that was certainly going off to university, you're acutely aware of how important it is to ensure that particularly education is something that anyone can access because I am absolutely confident that between the love of my mother and the opportunity to go to a, a university and not have to pay for it up front, that's the bedrock and the basis upon any successful thing I'll do. Totally. It's definitely a very interesting point. We're going to get more stuck into it in a bit, but first up, we've got to get into the music. Now, the first song you brought on is by Bon Iver, Blindsided. Why'd you bring this one on? I will say this about a number of the tracks tonight. I could have chosen any track of this album. When this album came out, I thought it was just the most beautiful sound, his voice and the way he composed most of his pieces. I particularly liked this song, and this shows a bit of a human side to me, because the album dropped after my first ever breakup and I had nice. to go to Adelaide for a university conference and I must have played this song on repeat for about four days. Oh. And so this is like the breakup song for me. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to point fingers and name names, but they certainly know who they are. <laughs> Contrast in the snow For the agony I'd rather 
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and my guest today is Gamilaro Man, lawyer and young liberal Jeffrey Winters. Now, you were raised Anglican. Are you still practicing? So, yeah, well, I, it's funny. I was never raised any denomination, but we always went to an Anglican okay. church, and I certainly came to form a lot of my worldview and hold my particular faith based on what I was taught in an Anglican church, so I guess I am an Anglican. How does that fit, I guess, with your sexuality as a gay man? Does that have an impact? Did you ever feel like there was a conflict between your religious beliefs and your sexuality? Yeah, I think uh, it was certainly an obvious and often discussed conflict. I remember when I was kind of late teens and going through the motions of growing up and figuring everything out and, you know, like sitting down with mum and the Anglican reverend to talk about this particular issue, which we won't give a name, which was of course, homosexuality. And it was fra- it was framed as, you know, oh, boys go through things and experience things and it's all fine, but don't worry, you know, like the truth or whatever will, will come through in the end. But what was strange for me was that because I was so curious and interested, I guess, in the debates that anything threw up, whether it was a particular political idea or religion, and I'd spent so many years pulling apart all of these religious assumptions, whether it was who you would and wouldn't marry or whether you would or wouldn't have sex before marriage or why women wouldn't be leaders in the church or something like that, or whether the role of a man was to be the final say in a family. Because I'd always contested those ideas so heatedly. Strangely enough, I guess this just became another one of those issues that perhaps I disagreed with the majority of people around me and what they felt was the right answer in a Mm. religious point of view. But I just viewed that as my my own personal nuanced version of the faith, which I wholeheartedly and bona fide believed in. And I guess that even today, as as life is complex and nothing is straightforward, it's very easy for religion to, to throw down bright lines and say you're either in or outside of that box. But for me, it's always been a case of, well, no, faith is between you and the person or the group or the entity or the idea that you put your faith in. And for me, it's always been about a faith between me and God, and it has nothing really to do with what the church tells me is right or wrong, but about the conclusions that I come to in my own uh, moments of you know, meditation and thought. And what do you think that you get most out of that faith today, in today's world? You know what? Life can be quite frustrating and depressing, particularly if you are pursuing big goals that can sometimes seem difficult and impossible. And it might sound like a cliche, but for me, I guess the most important support I've ever drawn from my own faith was a sense of purpose. Mm. And at the end of the day, you can people serve a number of gods. It might be money, it might be fame or ambition, uh, and they all give you a sense of purpose. And I think sometimes when you're on a path where the goals you're pursuing are a little bit more altruistic, I guess is probably an arrogant way of putting it, but where they are a little bit more altruistic, that purpose has to come from somewhere. And I think for me, it's always come from the instilled uh, principles and beliefs that I gained from my religious upbringing. It's a good point. I mean, on that level, I mean, when did you start to become interested in politics? When did those ideals start to play out for you? I think I'd always shown an interest in the family. I'd always shown an interest in politics and we always talked about them. But for me personally, it certainly was in high school. I you know, coming into junior high school, I had always thought maybe I'd end up being a musician. I was playing piano a lot and that was sort of my love of life. But as I kind of found books and ideas and got involved in in discussion, I remember taking myself off to the local member of parliament and being like, I would like to intern in your office for a week when I was about 15. (laughs) Nice. And, And he took me on and we went down to Canberra and we did all of these things. And that was the first step in an interrogation into something I thought was interesting. And as with most things in my life, I go at it a dog at a bone while it's still interesting to me. And, you know, 10 years, 12 years later, it's still interesting to me. So I'm still going at it like a dog at a bone. 
And I mean, like, from that point when you first kind of went into it, how much have you, I guess, your political ideals changed since then? I don't know whether my political ideals have changed. I think there are certainly parts of the way I operate now in the political space which are more realistic, pragmatic, and aware of the, the structural barriers and restraints. Um, you know, we'll probably talk about this at some point. There are two major parties, and when you choose to join either of them, it's genuinely probably with a goal to have the ability to affect some change through policy. Mm. Now, when you join one of the major parties, either one, there is not always going to be every issue that you agree with that party on. You're going to struggle sometimes, and it's about signing up to a team for better or for worse, because there's a bigger goal, a, be a better goal. Now, I find the party, any party is frustrating. I certainly experience my frustrations, but I also think there's, it's a utilitarian argument, and I guess this is the way my views have changed. It's been about finessing out what are the things I think are the most important and what are the things I'd like to see change or achieve in my lifetime and trying to figure out what's the best vehicle to get that change done. And for me, it was reaching a conclusion that the Liberal Party was the right one. Um, there are some many extraordinary people inside the opposing party who have equally, if not more, lofty and gracious goals in life. And they've chosen for, for good and noble reasons that the Labor Party is the right vehicle for them to, to achieve those, those outcomes. And I think any time people take an automatic and fundamental hatred to the other side just because it's the other side, they're losing sight of the whole purpose of this game, and that is to make everyone's life better. Uh, the two vehicles are not perfect. I've chosen the one that I think is the more perfect one, the one that's going to be more capable of supporting the change I want to see. And to date, I have no regrets for that decision. So you're calculatedly pragmatic almost. I wouldn't say I'm calculatedly <laughs> pragmatic. That's probably putting my political intelligence far too high. Um, and I certainly make mistakes. But... I think it's also time and place. I mean, I was coming through university and I didn't jump into politics at uni in terms of uh, a major party. I joined the Liberal Party years before, but I started to get involved because there was around me people who I saw saw leadership I liked and the style that I, I agreed with. Um, I saw people who had similar beliefs and objectives to mine who probably shared frustrations to me also. And as a result, when it came time for me to become more active in the party, it wasn't difficult because I had around me a community of somewhat like-minded individuals who were so supportive, and I still experience that today. Um, and it's one of the ways in which I can, you know, and I do encourage young people around me is to, to not necessarily think of it as this, you know, set of ideals that you read in a newspaper, mm. but at the end of the day, mm. political parties are a group of people who've got together genuinely most of the time for good reason. Um, and I'm just lucky that I have that community around me who exhibit those good reasons fairly much on a daily basis. Now, the next song you've brought on for us is definitely a political song. It's, it's a song with a message that, I guess, this this is a song that many politically orientated people have brought onto this show, actually. Mm. It would not be the first time it's come on. It's From Little Things, Big Things Grow by Paul Kelly and Kev Carmody. Now, I mean, for you, I mean, this is a very pertinent track. Mm. This song is one of those ones that keeps giving you meaning as life goes on. I mean, now practicing as a, a native title and land rights lawyer, it is just, it, it's the, the, the great victory of everything we do in our office mm. in a track. I think uh, putting on another hat as an, an Aboriginal person, to hear from a songwriter and a, and, a, and a musician such a respectful and genuine treatment of such uh, a topic that could be so easily fanned up into some great fanfare song and instead mm. is just so gentle and poignant and strong at some points is really beautiful. I certainly find this is one of those songs that when I'm frustrated or I'm going somewhere and I need to be motivated and I'm perhaps losing sight of the steps in, in a long pathway, this is one I put on to ensure I'm remaining focused and aware that it all is part of a bigger picture and it works out in the end. Oh, well, let's get this in one, Yeah, right. yeah, oh, we get it spot on. Six, five, four, three, two, one. Gather round people I tell you a story An eight year long story Power and pride the British Lord Vesting Vincent Lingari Were opposite men On opposite sides Vestie was fat With money and muscle Beef was his business Broad was his door, Vincent was lean, spoke very little, he had no bank balance, our dirt was his floor. From little things, big things grow, 
things, big things grow. Grinchy were working, nothing but rations. Once they had gathered the wealth of the land, daily depression got tighter and tighter. Gurinji decided they must make a stand. They picked up their swags and started off walking at Woody Creek. They sat themselves down. Now it don't sound like much, but it sure got tongues talking back at the homestead and then in the town. From little things, big things grow. I'll double your wages Seven quid a week you have in your hand Vincent said, uh-uh, we're not talking about wages We're sitting right here till we get our land Vestiment Road, Vestiment Thunder You don't stand a chance of a cinder in snow Vincent, if we fall, others are rising from little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. Then Vincent Lingyari, he boarded an airplane, landed in Sydney, big city lights. Daily he went round, softly speaking his story. All kinds of men from all walks of life. Vincent sat down with their big politicians. This affair they told him it's a matter of state. Let us sort it out. Why are people hungry? Vincent said, No thanks. We know how to wait. From little things, big things grow. Vincent Lignari returned in an airplane back to his country once more to sit down he told his people let the stars keep on turning we have friends in the south in the cities and towns eight years went by eight long years of waiting to when that tall stranger appeared in the land he came with lawyers, came with great ceremony, through Vincent's fingers for a handful of sand. From little things, big things grow. From little things, big things grow. That was the story of Vincent Langari. This is the story of something much more Of power and privilege cannot move a people Who know where they stand and they stand in their law From little things, big things grow
This is Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today is Gamilaro Man, lawyer and young liberal Jeffrey Winters. Now, Jeffrey, there's you know a casually racist view in Australia that if you're Indigenous, you have to be left, or if you're you know the similar thing applies if you're gay that you have to be left as well, right? But I mean, for someone who's not in either of those realms, I mean, why do you think that people think that? I think there's probably a historical basis where that's not totally unfair. I think you know particularly in terms of, say, gay rights, it was certainly the left politics that were first out the gate and it's been the right that's taken a lot longer to be brought around. Mm. Um, And, and, you know, the marriage of certain progressive issues like same-sex rights be linked to environmental issues, which, again, have always been led from the left. I think there's a historical reason. Um, I'm not entirely sure... Well, no, that's not true. I think the reason today we don't see the right owning these issues is because they're not historically geared up in a way to tap into the audiences Mm. who want to hear those hear those issues mm. take for example the current um as you you might put it expertise of the left to tap into younger voters mm. and that's through using particular medium you look at get up and the success it's had in terms of activating a young vote now that's an audience who's going to more readily act upon the more progressive issues when they go to the ballot box mm. so i think there has been a sense sometimes by the right of politics that it's you know either too hard or when they try it's because they're not employing the right means to get the message out and i think also sometimes and i'm not you know I'm not insulting the left. I think some of these issues are deeply complicated Mm. and involve serious thought. And I think sometimes the glib three-liners are easy to throw out from the left on progressive issues. And sometimes it takes a little bit of a deeper interrogation to understand why the right's pathway to change might be the correct one. On that note, though, as a liberal, do you think that the libs run the economy better than Labor? I think most of the data says that, but I think you're asking for more of a... a, Well, because do you think that that's also not a message, I guess, that the Labor Party have not been able to sell themselves as when... And and the Libs have used as an easy target for the Labor Party when it comes to the way in which they run the economy. Because, you know, if you look back at the recent history, at least, it's not necessarily been the case that Labor have been worse than the Libs. Well, if you look back at recent history, unfortunately, we haven't had sustainable governments for long enough to really test their economic policies. At the end of the day, economics take more than three or six years to come to fruition. And I think the real test is... this is why I think sometimes it's unfair to sledge the left about their handling of the economy. Some of the major structural reforms were put in place by Labor governments. Now, I think the reason we do, in a modern sense, say the Labor government is bad with the economy is because, you know, for better or for worse, history has shown us in the last 15 years, when Labor governments came in on the back of quite stable and successful economic policies, there was a, a temptation to spend, and they did. Uh, And you can't blame political opponents then when they're running against you in a campaign to point out that one is a spending government and one is a structural saving government. And that's, I think, the real basis of this argument that the left is bad at economics economics and and the Liberal Party is better. I also think... And this is an argument the Liberal Party is just starting to to grapple with and prosecute, I think, well, is this idea that most of the good the government does requires long-run sustainable Mm. funding. I mean, look at education recently. The sorts of figures we're talking about being required are monstrous. And in the state of New South Wales, for example, health, the health budget is an even better example, almost one-third of the state's budget. If you get the economics right, the argument should be that you're therefore able to provide for all the social goods. The Liberal Party's starting to engage with that narrative, and you're certainly seeing it come out through the Prime Minister and the Treasurer now. But I think coming around to marrying economic management and social progress and good is somewhere where the country's maturing towards. And I'm really interested to see where we land in this whole debate about the left's bad with managing economics and the right are dispassionate because they don't spend money on poor people <laughs> goes when we get to a point where we start to marry economic management and social provision. I mean, it's I mean, it's the way in which we hope it all goes, really, don't we? I mean, because that's been the biggest problem that we've had in this society politically for years. But, I mean, it, as a young person, I mean... It should be in our hands to be doing that, right? And do you think that there are a good group of young pollies coming through in both sides of politics that are going to be able to help change that? Or do you think the people that are currently in there now are going to have to do it? Uh, I think it's both. I think, unfortunately, long-run management of a country requires everyone lifting their bit. Um, so I think that answers the last part. I think the question before that about the next crop, I actually think there are some pretty extraordinary young people coming through on all sides. I mean... There's this great pub in Canberra where all the staffers go out to after a Wednesday night on a sitting week. And I'm always blown away by the great conversations I have with people, be they associated with the Greens Party, the Labor, or my own party. Um, I think, unfortunately, throughout history, we've seen a, a number of uninspiring politicians come through. Thankfully, those uninspiring politicians are increasingly sitting on the crossbench, and I hope that shows a more 
uh, mature awareness of the major parties to really focus on talent and keep them in and not just run to the populist uh, uh, mm. left or right. Uh, but I think it is really up to the next generation to know what the priorities of the nation are and not be afraid to take a long-run perspective. One of the real weaknesses of politics in the last decade has been a fixation with electoral cycles. Um, some of the big and best decisions that were made, whether it was Menzies on tertiary education or uh, you know, the Labor Party with tariff reduction, um, they're not always politically palatable right now. But I think the electorate responds to leadership and a, and a vision and oftentimes a vision means looking beyond the next election. Mm, and mm. that's what I think we've got to start focusing on in terms of how we develop talent in the future. It's a very good point. I mean, if you look at the way in which the last few elections have gone, it's, it's been this annoying, frustrating thing for voters where they've been the parties have been so similar in policies going to each election that you can barely tell the difference yeah. between the two. And everybody makes these predict predictions about the country swinging to the right, the populist right, or we're swinging to the left or what have it. But, you know... Time and time again, when we've got these narratives developing, you see a state election go through and it never turns out to be right. You know, everyone was you know, decrying what was the expected outcome in the French election. You get a very sensible, progressive, but economically conservative individual emerging from, from the centre. I think most Australians sit in the centre. I think most good policy is in the centre of the spectrum of politics. And I think running two major parties getting more alike in policy isn't a bad thing, provided they start underpinning, and I think we do, start underpinning their policies in the principles for how they got to those policies in the first place. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens if we go to an election early next year, but anyway, we'll get onto that a bit more later. Moving on to the songs again, the next song you've got for us is Ordinary People by John Legend, a classic track. But, I mean, what's the story behind this one for you? This is a bit of a cheeky inclusion and is a somewhat call out to A, an ex-neighbour and B, a bunch of housemates. So <laughs> many years ago when I was a single man in Sydney and it, you had to pull out all your party tricks to just, you know, get a little bit of love, uh, my housemate had bought a grand piano and it sat in the middle of our living room in a tiny house in McMahon's Point. And when I would come home from dates, the, the routine, I guess, the way we would describe it was that we'd come in and be like, oh, who plays the piano? And then I would sit down and play this particular song to them. <laughs> and I always thought it was like my ace of spades. And then some months later it emerged that our neighbours had figured out what was going on and it became a street joke that whenever this song was bellowing down the street at about 11.30 on a Saturday night, we knew Jeffrey had had a good day. Oh, mate, I wish I had a trick like that. That's a killer. <laughs> I'm not even indulging that one. <laughs> with you but this ain't the honeymoon past the infatuation phase right in the thick of love at times we get sick of love it seems like we argue every day I know I misbehaved and you've made your mistakes and we both still got room left to grow and though love sometimes hurts I still put you first And we'll make this thing work But I think we should take it slow We're just ordinary people We don't know which way to go Cause we're ordinary people Maybe we should take it slow Take it slow Oh, this time we'll take it slow, take it slow. Oh, this time we'll take it slow. This ain't a movie, no, no fairy tale conclusion, y'all. It gets more confusing every day. Oh, sometimes it's heaven sent Then we head back to hell again We kiss then we make up on the way I hang up, you call We rise and we fall And we feel like just walking away But as our love advances We take second chances Though it's not a fantasy I still want you Way to go. 
time will take it slow Take it slow oh, oh, yeah. This time will take it slow Take it slow Maybe we'll live and learn Maybe we'll crash and burn Maybe you'll stay, maybe you'll leave Maybe you'll return Maybe another fight Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus, and today on Out of the Box, my guest is Gamilaro Man, lawyer and young liberal Jeffrey Winters. Now, how do you actually feel about the Liberal Party's policy on gay marriage? Listen, I'm quite honest about this, that the current policy isn't the policy I would choose, and I certainly think it's not the policy that most Australians choose either. Um, when it came before the parliament that we have now and was tested, policy being the plebiscite, it's shown that it doesn't stand up. Now, most people go and most people accuse me of being two-faced about this issue because during the election I was out there selling it. Mm. I mean, at that time, I had been convinced of the logic, and I think it's still sound logic, that for a lot of people who are against the concept of marriage equality, going through the process of expressing their view through a vote is going to provide them a sense of input to the ultimate conclusion. I was always convinced the ultimate conclusion would be that the country would overwhelmingly support marriage Mm. equality. And therefore, that process could be one of quite substantial healing for people. And the view is often, you know, oh, well, don't you think it's unfair for some child in a community where the the vast majority of people are anti-marriage equality for them to have to go through hearing all of those horrible things? Well, yeah, that isn't fortunate. But at the end of the day, I think it's more fortunate for those people to go through the process and realise at the end that the majority of Australians do absolutely have their back and to see that overwhelming result. And that was the logic that informed Mm -hmm. my support of it during the campaign. I also expressly said during the campaign that at the end of the day, it was up to the electorate to determine if they wanted this to happen. Not enough members of parliament were elected who supported it. Therefore, that policy should fall and we should have a free vote. That's a fair enough point, and I think that we will probably, hopefully, fingers crossed, get that way at the next election. You'd hope before the next election. Yeah. I would be very surprised if it didn't occur before the next election. Really? You reckon? Yep. Go out on a limb and say that? You reckon before the next election we'll we'll see a vote? I think there is a growing frustration from the far left and the far right of all parties, including my own, so Mm. much so that I would think the far right would have formed the view by now that, yeah, they don't support the policy, they think it's historically inevitable, Mm. but they'd rather get it out of the way before they have to carry it through another election, and on their terms, not on some you know, slightly more progressive policy mm. terms of the next government if it was not their party. Do you think it will help Turnbull out of the bleak position that he's in now? I don't think one policy is going to help anyone out of a bleak position, but I certainly think this will be an unnecessary weight removed. Definitely, definitely. Now, look, uh, going on to the next song you've chosen for us, Last Goodbye by Jeff Buckley. God, you've just, you're full of classics, mate, I must say. I'm an old soul. Yeah. Um, this, I remember my sister bringing this album into our life when I was about... 15 and listening to every track on repeat and I probably still do on a regular basis and there was just something about every song on this album but this one particularly being you know perhaps the the most famous for a lot of people apart from say hallelujah I remember being fixated with the whole Jeff Buckley tragedy story as well at that time and so I couldn't come on the show and not put it on the list
been listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Serge Negus. My guest today has been Camillo O'Man, lawyer and young liberal Jeffrey Winters. Now, looking back at your 2016 election campaign, did, did you put your hand up for that? Did you, was it the Liberal Party ask you? How did that happen? It was sort of a bit of both and a, and a bit of an inevitability about it as well. Mm. Uh, I had got involved in the Liberal Party in the inner city and that was certainly my community inside the party. The election was forming. I guess I'd, I got to a stage of life and career where it was no longer absurd in terms mm. of being so young, um, but it certainly was unusual. And when the oppos- opportunity presented, I remember having a dinner party and us talking about the idea amongst friends and calling somebody up, a mentor in the party, and being like, what do you think of this idea? I know it's a bit crazy. Me expecting them to say, no, this is this is insane, don't do it. But instead, them turning around and saying, you know what, this could be a really, really good thing for you. It could be a great thing for the party in terms of really giving a voice to that sensible, moderate, progressive uh, brand inside the party. Uh, if you can go through all the pressures of the campaign, you think come out the other side still healthy and passionate about what you believe in, do it. So that's what we did. There was a lot of backfire, though, as well. People were, like, really taken aback by your selection, though, as well, right? I have a rule that I don't read comments on articles. Mm. I know other people do, and it leads to them being very upset, including my mother, (laughs) who would get extremely disturbed. I don't, because... Really, the only people's opinion that I cared about was the ones that would come up and talk with me face-to-face at King's Cross Station on a Saturday morning 
or Redfern Station on a Tuesday morning. And most people, while they were surprised and didn't necessarily understand it, wanted to have a respectful and you know insightful conversation. And that was where I really drew some insight into the community. And at the end of the day, you're reflecting a group of people as a representative if you do get elected, and you've got to get out there and listen to them. And so really the people commenting often are the squeaky wheel, mm. probably a vote I'm never going to get anyway. So my time was better spent talking to people who may have been open to having that discussion that could have changed their view. And a lot of people also said that it was a bit of a strategic ploy, you know, um, to run a young gay Aboriginal man in I the I wish seat. we were that strategic in the New South Wales Liberal Party. You don't think we're not that, that electorally <laughs> strategic as to go out there and try and manipulate people in that way. I mean, perhaps we'd have better electoral prospects if we were. But, you know, for better or for worse, we have a pre-selection process where the local communities get to choose their candidates. And that's how it works. And I mean, the reality is you've been living in the electorate for over 10 years, right? Uh, in and out. I mean, I did live on the North Shore for a little mm. bit, but ever since I moved to uni when I was 18, I've been either you know, in the inner city over here near Newtown or up in where I am now, Darlinghurst. And as thing, if things go the way they're looking at the moment and, you know, with this prediction that there's a chance we may see an election as early as next year, a federal election that is, would you run again in the same seat? I'd be very tempted. If for no other reason than it's my home and I'm only going to run where my home is. Mm. Secondly, I think there is a really good story to be told in terms of this government that often is drowned out by a bunch of nonsense. And I would happily sell that story every morning. Um, I still think Malcolm Turnbull is a great prime minister. I think he's got huge potential that we've still yet to to realise. And I hope we get to as a country because we'll all benefit from it. And also, it might sound insane. I had an enjoyable experience. I didn't come out of that campaign thinking, oh, Lord, this is a horrible thing to sign up for. Uh, One of the beauties of the seat of Sydney you know, a community from Newtown to Darlinghurst, from Potts Point to Waterloo, is that most people are engaged, progressive, and want to have a good conversation about the ideas. They're extremely accepting, extremely diverse. You've got the richest and the poorest, black and white, gay and straight. And it's a beautiful community to be in. And to spend another six weeks talking to people every day in that community is not the worst thing on earth. It actually might be one of the better things to do with my time. And on a more personal level, you you said recently in an article that, you know, Some people accuse Indigenous politicians of being sellouts for playing the white man's game. I mean, how do you feel about it? In that respect, Mm. do you you look at yourself as a bit of a political martyr? No, I don't, but it's surprising, and I don't think the broader community often understand this, but I think it's a tough gig for Indigenous politicians, no matter what party they stand for, and I think it's not at all surprising that we see this the largest group of Indigenous representatives ever in the Parliament coming together and working in an extremely collaborative way that is almost unusual for the partisan nature of our Parliament. Um, But it happens because, you know, for example, Patrick Dodson, a former priest of the Catholic Church, comes out and says he's in favour of same-sex marriage because he can't understand discrimination. So when you get a group of people together who have understood the nuances of life in a particularly personal and acute way, I can understand why they want to work together. And people often don't understand that one of the motivations is that they suffer a huge amount of internal pressure from the community who feel that they're, they're owed a higher burden, and perhaps they are. But you know, the Indigenous community is not afraid to make you aware of what they think about how you're doing things, what your views are. And, and I think it's a tough gig for these guys that are currently in there, and they're doing an extraordinary job together. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end on. That's about all we've got time for today. Coming up next is Lunch with Bridie Tanner. We do have time for one last track, though, Jeffrey. So what are you going to end us up with? What are you going to put on last? I think this is one of the greatest songs ever recorded in modern music. I've got Dreams by Fleetwood Mac, a song that is featured on every mixtape I've ever made, so it had to be on the mixtape I'm making with you, Serge. Perfect. Thank you so much, mate.
Good times is in the cards Living in broad time I'm paying the extra charge To feel like something small Is worth a hundred large Swag is on retard Charm is on massage Wit is on guard I challenge you to a duel Who needs a chain With every thought's a jewel God bless the widow And everyone's a fool Fuck a genie and three wishes I just want a bottle A place to write my novel I am heroin And those that have rhyme And think how do you find This upper echelon This time Let's toast to better days, a beautiful mind and a flow that never ends. Like I'm on methamphetamines Move like my enemy Ten steps ahead of me Say my reputation precede me Like a pedigree Gentlemanly gangsters These beyond the 70s Holding fast money Without running out of patience Move in silence Without running up in places Cake by the layers Rich but never famous Hustle anonymous Still remain nameless In hindsight Gold coming bars Like a Klondike The minute before the storm Hit is what I'm calm like Suited and booted For a shooting Like it's prom night It's suicide right Pursuers tried like to no avail And their heroes what they died like I got them waiting on the news like I'm crying kite Not in the limelight or needed for crime right No ghost just bodied and chalk close to the line sight Outside where the killers and the dealers swarm And inside they dressed up like it's a telethon Black tire fair but they holding heavy arms Straight cash with a stash in the Cumberbund More Bacardi yeah, the bastards of the party home Riots erupting around and still we party on Been a quantum leap to a king from a pawn But it was destined, the conclusion was foregone Serenade of the former slave promenade Cause them long days in the sun have now become shade So we doing high speeds in a narrow lane Say cheese free falling from the aeroplane Another feather in the cap For all the years that we spent in luxury's lap Without looking back Cause memories can sting like a hornet Damn it felt good to see people up on it <laughs> 